And welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In today's episode, we will be discussing the power and the science of serendipity. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Christian Bush, Director of the Center for Global Affairs Global Economy Program at New York University and author of Connect the Dots, The Art and Science of Creating Good Luck. Christian, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for accepting. Uh, Christian, you also teach on purpose-driven leadership, entrepreneurship, emerging markets, and social innovation at New York University and at the London School of Economics. And you have spent a decade exploring how unexpected encounters, if acted upon, can change your life and change the way you view your life. The Leaders on Purpose organization being a prime example, but we'll come back to that. And how being lucky, in inverted commas, may be an art or a skill that one could master and use more consciously. You've also given examples that it works for businesses and organizations, and it's like an art of connection. And I I would like to call it, therefore, an art of leadership, so to speak. And as we know, life is full of chance encounters, and particularly the pandemic has shown us that, and particularly with the rise of technology and all the opportunities that brings. So in your book, you tell us about your story and how that shifted your view on life and serendipity and I would love you to walk our listeners through that experience and how it has shaped your life so differently. Yeah absolutely and you know it it really comes from I used to be that kid I was kicked out of high school had to repeat a year probably held the unofficial world record of how many (laughs) dustbins and crash cans you knock over on your way to school when you're driving and uh, then one day I wasn't so lucky anymore and I I crashed into four parked cars uh, Mm. all cars completely destroyed, including my own. I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and was like, oh my God, he's still alive. And so that idea that I was supposed to be dead, that really stuck with me. And I asked myself all these weird questions. You know, if, uh-huh. if I would have died, who would have come to my funeral? Who would have actually cared? Was it all worth it? And at that point, I only had depressing answers. And so yeah. I, uh, it took me on this intense, intense search for meaning. Uh, I started reading this amazing book, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is mm. all about how do you find meaning in tough circumstances? And so it took me on this intense search for meaning. And what I realized is what I enjoy doing the most is connecting ideas, connecting people and how they fit together. And, uh, you know, so I started as community builder, then entrepreneur, and then later went into academia. And what I found fascinating on this journey is that the most inspiring, purpose-driven, inspirational people, they seem to have something in common, mm. which is that they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They intuitively see a little bit more in the unexpected and then connect the dots and turn into positive outcomes. And so I got fascinated by that question. Is there a science-based framework for this? Is there a way that, you know, when you look at all these different kind of uh, serendipity stories from love to finding a co-founder to how 50% of innovations and inventions happen, they're very different stories, mm. but the pattern is always the same. And so that's really what got me excited to say, okay, if there's always the same process of spotting and connecting dots, then we can create more dots, but also we can learn how to connect them better. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit more about that process? I mean, there's some fascinating stories in your book from Nathaniel and his sort of Ted Volcano to sort of Phil, the hairdresser who decides to use human hair to mop up oil after the Exxon oil spill. I mean, could, could you walk us through that example of Nathaniel? I just think it's so telling that when we, we could just look at that in two different ways, linear, of course, it's really bad or it's full of opportunities. And I'd love as if you could walk us through that, um, 
that process of changing it, shifting the paradigm, if you like, and just turning it completely on its head. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and Nathaniel, uh, there was a couple of years ago, um, some, some of, of the listeners might remember that there was this volcano uh, that broke out in Iceland. And, mm. uh, you know, there was this huge ash cloud uh, across Europe. And I got a call in the morning on a Saturday morning and I, you know, had been out for, for a long night and, and was kind of like grumpy that someone would call me. <laughs> and it was an unknown number. Um, and I was still, okay, well, I'll, ha- I'll take a look. I'll see who that is. And you answered and so Nathaniel, it. Incredible that answered you answered it. the phone. <laughs> I answered it. No, I'm too curious to not answer the phone. <laughs> when, when it rings. So I answered the phone and there was this guy called Nathaniel. And he said, look, uh, hey, this is Nathaniel. We don't know each other yet. A mutual friend gave me your number. You know, I'm stuck in London. I, I'm from San Francisco. I'm stuck in London. I was at the Skull World Forum in, in Oxford, which is the biggest social entrepreneurship conference in the world. and and now I'm stuck in London and uh, we can't fly out. Like, you know, because of the ash cloud, mm. all planes are canceled. Some people are trying to take the boat, but I think that takes too long. And <laughs> so, I, uh, so I, Nathaniel, now am stuck here in London. And all these amazing people who were at that conference and another conference that happened at the same time in another city nearby, and they're all stuck in London and they all have their schedules cleared. So mm. I want to organize a conference. So within 30-ish hours, Nathaniel organized a full-fledged TEDx conference audio, uh, uh, conference okay. with speakers like Jeff Skoll, who was the founding president of eBay, to Larry Brilliant, an amazing uh, person, to you know 10,000 people on the recorded live stream, completely sold out and so on. And what's fascinating about that is what he did was there was this unexpected moment, right? The volcano, the ash cloud mm. that would ground mm. planes, that happened to everyone, right? This kind of random event. But he did something with it. He said, okay, is there something that I can do with this? I know that Ted loves, Ted is this ideas conference, and I know mm-hmm. that Ted loves kind of turning challenges into opportunities. So why don't I try to get in touch with them and tell them all these amazing people are here. I want to put them on stage, talk about kind of, you know, experiencing good things in the unexpected or whatever it is. And then essentially I'll pitch that to them and see what I can do. So he pitched it mm-hmm. to them. They were super excited. Um, gave him the brand, and then he went to the local co-working spaces. They gave him free spaces, and then he went to the speakers, and they were like, oh, amazing idea, let's do it. But the point here is that what happened in this example was uh, similar to when you look at those examples of serendipity, uh, you know, Viagra, penicillin. um, We can talk more about the potato (laughs) washing machine later. (laughs) (laughs) In those kind of examples, Mm -hmm. it's always the same thing. There's some kind of unexpected event that happens and then it's up to us to imbue meaning in that. It's up to us to say, what can I do with this and connect the dots? And I think the potato washing machine actually it nicely illustrates this because it's, it's all about saying, okay, when something goes quote unquote wrong, is there something I can do with that? And so in this example, there's a Chinese company, they produce washing machines, refrigerators, and so on. And they receive calls from farmers. And the farmers told them, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. Mm-hmm. Well, why is the washing machine breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. And so what seems to, you know, usually we'll mm. probably try to, quote unquote, educate the customer, right? And say, well, don't wash your potatoes in the washing machine. It's made for clothes, not for, for potatoes. They did the opposite. They said, you know what? There's probably a lot of farmers in China and the world who have similar problems. So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? And that's how serendipitously the potato washing machine emerged. Long story short, what all these examples have in common is there's some kind of unexpected moment, but then someone does something with it and turns into positive outcomes. and so. The, the process that we talked about is really about saying, how do you spot those potential dots and then connect them? But what's really exciting about this is you can also create more of those dots that, you know, then in a way lead to more serendipity as well. So tell us more about creating those dots. I mean, is it 
a skill that can be learned or is it a mindset for you? Yeah. Well, I'm very excited that in a way mindset you can build, right? You can you can mm. build towards. And, and so I'm a big fan of small behavioral shifts and taking small practices and then actually, you know, it, it, mm. it accelerates the more mm. you do with it. And so one example of how we can create dots that I'm a big fan of, because it also allows other people to connect the dots for us, is um, the hook strategy. And yeah. the hook strategy is all about saying, how can you build in relevant talking points, interests into conversations so that other people can pick up on those they are most interested in? So I'm a big fan, you know, doing a serendipity journal where you write down, these are two or three areas I'm interested in at the moment, and they are, I bring them into different conversations. And how that mm -hmm. looks like in practice is if you look at someone like Oli Barrett in London, yeah. who's a wonderful entrepreneur there, if you would ask him this dreaded, what do you do question, you know, the question that puts yeah. people into boxes and, and keeps them there, he wouldn't just say, I'm a technology entrepreneur. He would mm -hmm. say, I'm a technology entrepreneur, recently read into the philosophy of science, but what I'm really excited about is playing the piano. And so what he's doing here is he's giving you three potential hooks where you could be like, oh my God, such a coincidence. My sister's teaching on the philosophy of science. You should give a guest lecture. Oh my God, such a coincidence. We're hosting piano sessions. You should drop by. The point is it allows other people to find coincidence in what we're saying because we are opening up that potential opportunity mm. space of our ability to help. Mm. And I think I really like the points around how we tell stories. So if I, if I think about what you're saying, and that's a conscious reframe of, of how I answer that question. But if I go back to the stories that could be serendipitous, but I'll tell them in a linear fashion, which is where you refer to hindsight bias. And, and I think that's really, really interesting because if we go back into system one of just our reflex reaction is to prove to people, particularly in organizations, I feel this happens, is to prove to people it's obviously that we're in control. How can we change that? Yeah. Well, that's a great point, right? Because I think we all do it intuitively to your point in our own mm. lives, right? When we yes. present our CV to people, we would say something like, yeah, and then I wanted to do this and then this, and then I wanted to change industry in this. Yeah. Or maybe you just bumped into someone at a conference who told you about something and then you, you took on that other job, right? So, so, so in a way, we all somehow try to portray that we were in control, even if we not necessarily were always in control. So there's mm -hmm. both a kind of illusion of control, but also a lot of times we might know about it, but still we want to portray it as being more in control than, than we mm -hmm. were. And I think I'm a big fan, you know, so, so I, I work a lot with executive teams and mm -hmm. the same happens in the, board, in the boardroom, right? When you, yeah, when you are the CEO and you say, this is my strategy, we did exactly this, everything went according to plan and now this happened, right? So step by step by step by step. And everyone in this room's, room knows, no, it certainly wasn't like this. It was more <laughs> like a squiggle, right? That, um, yeah. uh, that, that kind of like went like this. And so I'm a big fan of really legitimizing the unexpected. And, and I think that builds the real trust then in companies. If you're the CEO and you say, you know what? Here's an approximate strategy. If I'm MasterCard, I'm saying, I want to bring 500 million people into the financial system. Now, mm. here's our North Star. And then, hey, here's an approximate strategy. We will do that via this and this and this. But I'm already telling you now that I want everyone to chip in with new ideas if you find better ways of how that strategy can be executed. And what you're doing now is you're legitimizing that someone who comes in with something like a potato washing machine observation, you're not threatening the authority of the person who made the initial plan, but actually that person made it from day one part of the plan that you're coming to them because mm. you created a culture for that to happen. Happen. And so I'm a big fan of really the more we legitimize the unexpected as part of our plan and don't mm. see, for example, the potato washing machine as, oh, we failed to develop a marketing plan that told us that we could develop a potato washing machine. No, <laughs> you created a culture 
that was strong enough to allow people to speak up about it and then to invest into it. And I think to me, that's the biggest thing that once we realize that we can develop a culture for that, then actually we also have a more active vocabulary. Then we don't say, oh, we were just surprised by XYZ thing, but we're saying, no, we cultivated an environment that made it more likely that we can innovate like that. Yeah, because I mean, just as you were talking then about this, the CEO saying, oh, yeah, well, if it doesn't, if I, if we're not quite sure, we'll do this and we'll see what happens when we do this. That could sound like quite an overwhelming environment for his team or her team. So how do, that's, do they have to create the culture before they do that? Or do they just sort of try it and see? Well, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, maybe illustrating it with how, how some, some kind of governors acted in the US, right? That mm. um, when COVID happened, you had the old school leadership mindset, which was if you were in power in a state, so let's say a governor or, or whoever made the rules in, in a particular state, the old school leadership style was to say, okay, we have to close the state down now, but here's an exact timeline of when we will open up again. So mm. here's exactly May 15th, we will open up again. Now that sets you up for failure because um, you have no idea when new information about new clusters come in and that this actually is safe now. And so now when you revise the timeline, you look weak, right? Because you look mm. like someone who didn't understand um, what would happen um, or you have an incentive, what a lot of people did, to hide the data, right? Because you, it doesn't fit your model. Mm -hmm. Now, the new new kind of leadership, like a serendipity mindset, like informed leadership style is more focused on saying, okay, here are our principles, our North Star, which is economic health and, and financial health, uh, sorry, economic health and public health. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're going. Here's an approximate timeline. So this is the timeline that we have for now. But I'm telling you already now that if we get new information, we will adjust that timeline. For now, we also say we will open up on May 15th, but I'm already telling you now we'll revise that timeline as soon as new information comes in. So what you're doing here is you're giving exactly the same guidance to people than you do in the other example, but you're actually saying from day one, it's part of the plan that we will adjust that as we learn. And so what happens then is that then people, when you revise the timeline, they're like, oh my God, hey, he's following through with it. I can trust that person. And mm. so I think that's kind of where it gets really exciting that in a way, then you make the unexpected part of your plan and it becomes an ally because you actually look even stronger because you from day one said, I will always go with better information and I will go with this. And that's how, when you look at which companies survive versus which ones die, it's those companies that are able to act on these kind of cues rather than try to hide from them. And then in five years from now, have no opportunity to actually do something about it. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, imagine you have a brewery and, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. your idea, your plan is we will be that brewery that produces X, Y, Z. And then COVID happens. And yeah. now all your main customers, you know, go bankrupt or can't order as much from you. Now, in that moment, right, if you realize, wow, we can use our alcohol to produce hand sanitizer you actually have a much bigger market now where you can produce so much hand sanitizer that nobody else could, could do at that scale now because you have that scale already. Mm. So now you can become one of the biggest hand sanitizer companies. As a brewery, you would have stayed relatively small. As a hand sanitizer company, now you can um, from one day to the other really scale up. And so it's really those kind of things where, again, if you're kind of in this, no, like we are supposed to do X, Y, Z, you <laughs> miss that. And, and yeah. I think that's exactly what you mentioned earlier. Our illusion of control is that if we do things, if you if you micro plan everything, that that gives you more control. But that's an illusion of control, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are, what are the main sort of constraints to the serendipity mindset? Then, if if you're trying to help a, navig a team navigate uncertainty, but particularly today, that must be that's everybody's everybody's challenge, isn't it? How do you navigate uncertainty all the time? What are, what are the main blockers to a serendipity mindset that you see happening in the, let's say, 
fast-paced delivery environment that we have to work in. Yeah. Well, I, I feel a lot of times it comes to self-limiting beliefs, right? So mm -hmm. it comes to imagine you are in a meeting and you have this unexpected, amazing idea, but you don't raise it because you don't feel ready, worthy, you fear rejection, you fear judgment, you name it. Same if you are in a coffee shop, you bump in that person feel, oh my God, this could be it. But you, you don't speak up because you mm. feel, oh, that person might reject me. Same at a conference, right? Amazing speaker, you, 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 you don't dare in the end to go to them. Like Those are the kind of things where we hold ourselves back even if we saw the opportunity, we didn't mm. act on it. And so I'm a big fan of really in that kind of serendipity journal to write down what were incidences in the past where I saw potential opportunity, where I saw potential serendipity happen, but it didn't. And then why was that the case? And mm. usually there's a pattern, right? The pattern might be, so in my case, for example, I used to have fear of rejection. And then when you have fear of rejection, you realize at some point, well, okay. In my case, what I realized is you always think that the rejection itself is the worst thing, right? The sting that comes from being rejected, like yeah. because the speaker doesn't have time for you or the love interest doesn't have time for you or whatever it is. But actually then you realize, no, The worst thing is when you walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken? So the regret that comes from not having done it. And mm. I think that's kind of reframing of realizing the worst thing that can happen is not rejection, but the worst thing that can happen is not acting on that potential opportunity. That actually then for me reframed a lot of this. And I think we can all then, once we understand what is our kind of underlying self-limiting belief or bias or whatever we have, then actually we can act more on it um, in that regard. And I think there's a lot of other things, right? A lot of biases we have. And mm. one of them, my favorite bias actually is the, the that we consistently underestimate how <laughs> probable the unexpected is, right? The, the unexpected is so extremely probable. You know, it's very improbable that my this lamp falls on my head now. It's very improbable that this laptop falls down. Mm. Very improbable that you just cut me off. But if you <laughs> add up all these different things... <laughs> But if you add up all these very improbable things, mm. it becomes actually quite probable that something happens because there's just so many potential things that could happen. And I think that's the thing, right? What we assume when we cross the streets, when you go to the supermarket, you sometimes look left and right because even with the light being on red, you think, okay, but sometimes someone just takes a red light, right? And the same yeah. actually we can do when we think about the positively unexpected. If you don't expect money to lay in the street you don't see it but i for example find a lot of money in the street because i expect it to be there unfortunately mostly pennies so it doesn't really help mm. but um, <laughs> but because i but but because i expect it to be there and because i i i know how much money people drop and so it's kind of it's interesting once you start looking out for the unexpected mm. then it tends to happen often and i think in the company context a lot of times you can incentivize that right by asking people in the weekly meeting what surprised you last week and things like this and then actually people look out more for the positively unexpected And then you create a culture that actually is innovative versus that has some people um, that are responsible for innovation. Mm. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's like the story in the book around lucky and unlucky. So, you know, and that's about money, isn't it? Finding money on the floor. It's an experiment where one person finds it and has a great day with, full of opportunities because the hook strategy is there and he connects the dots and someone else who just steps over it doesn't see it and just has a sort of normal banal day. I think that's really interesting. And It brings me to the idea of, so we've talked about individual serendipity, but you also talk about organizational collective memory of an organization, which is critical in detecting the universal in the particular, but particularly the informed observer. Can you tell us about the informed observer, which is coming to mind as you're talking about the meetings and, you know, stepping over money or finding money and the whole different way you can look at, look, what, yeah. what happens in the organization when you have a collective memory of, the, of an organization? Yeah. 
Well, I think what's really interesting, usually, like every organization has some kind mm -hmm. of idea, right, of, of what is right or wrong, of, of what kind of knowledge is there and knowledge base and everything else. Sometimes that kind of leads us to that functional fixedness, right? That we kind of only yeah. look at things in a particular way or, you know, that we as an IBM might not see the next kind of thing that's out there because we're mm. so focused on our own thing, mm. those kind of things. Um, and that's how a lot of times companies get out of business, right? That they, yeah. that they are so focused on their own kind of organizational, both memory, but also knowledge base and everything else that you're kind of so focused on that that you don't see the kind of newly emerging things. I'm actually a big fan, just as a side note, of like Hire, for example, in China, One of the things they said at some point was to say, we cannot identify anymore just as a refrigerator and washing machine company, because mm. if we identify ourselves by our brand and what we know well, which is how to produce refrigerators and washing machines, then we might be obsolete in five years. Who knows if we need refrigerators and washing machines in five years? So innovating around this knowledge is not enough. Mm. What we actually want to innovate around is to say, we have smart refrigerators now, so we have a lot of data. So now based on this data, we want to like, like have very different kind of things we work on. And that's the fascinating thing about them, I always felt, is that they don't see other refrigerator companies, for example, as, as the key competitors. They a lot of times see the Amazons and the Googles of the world as yeah. their key competitors because they know Amazon from one day to the other could just go into the pharmacy market as they did in the book market and other markets, and they just knock you out, right? Because mm. of the scale and everything else. And so I think the long story short here is to say, let's take a step back away from the kind of functional fixedness that, that defines a lot of what we're doing because we got used to it and really think about what is it really that's the gem here? What is it really that will define that we can thrive in a few years from now? And then based on this, how do we build a business that allows us to do that? And so it's less about the kind of knowledge stock and the exact knowledge and mm. more about the flow of knowledge and the kind of knowledge you want to allow to come in and then do something with it. And that's where serendipity comes in, where you're saying, once you open yourself up then to these new cues that you're seeing, then you might you know, come up with a potato washing machine, but you might also come up with a new video game because you realize that the smart refrigerator tells you that people leave the refrigerator open for 10 minutes because they probably do X, Y, Z thing. And maybe you could build a new product around this, you name it, that mm. has nothing to do with refrigerators. And so it's really kind of that idea of that an organizational knowledge space can be both a constraint, but it can also become a beautiful foundation for, the, for, for a new one if we can connect it to something relevant out there. And it's, it just reminds me of the whole idea of playing not to lose as opposed to playing to win. The analogy you make in the book with like, and Hire is a great example of this because clearly it's, it's a platform organization now, but of spiders and starfish. And the fact that, you know, the whole organizational piece around more networked ecosystem organizations, if you cut a spider's head off, it won't live. But the starfish doesn't have a head. And I loved that analogy of, Two things. If you cut a leg off, it's either direct regeneration or it's another starfish. If you just leave it to react in an environment that hooks it, then you will get serendipity and, by definition, new new things and, and different ways of working. Uh, can you tell us how you see that playing out today? Do, do people, organizations, use that consciously or not? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because companies like Hire, what they've been trying to do is to organize a little bit more like a starfish, right? Where you say, yeah. you know, you will hear buzzwords like ecosystems and things like that. But, but at the core of that idea is really the idea that traditionally when you have a big company and you have a big head, right? Like a big kind of center and headquarters and whatever, it might be slower. It might not be as reactive to new trends. It might certainly mm. not be uh, um, very active in, in coming up with new things. And so the idea of how do you build in kind of entrepreneurialism at the core of the organization. And so what companies like Hire do is that they say essentially, okay, 
instead of just having profit centers or things that are just kind of here, but still somehow depend on this, we build things like micro enterprises where within a bigger company, people now become micro entrepreneurs, where if you're a team of 10 people that works on the potato washing machine, you're responsible for this. You're now an investable entity. You now are essentially building a company where a company like Hire would invest like 51%. And then mm-hmm. you as an entrepreneur own a little bit and then maybe outside people own it. The key point here is that, that the idea is that you, that you turn in a way the company into a bit more of a market that on one hand leverages what a company does really well, which is mm-hmm. HR, finance, um, maybe brand recognition and so on. So the best of what a big company can give. But then at the same time, you also incentivize people to be truly entrepreneurial because it's actually a loan standing entity that can be invested into that you can build the value of and that you're responsible for. And I think that can also be scary, right? Because now mm-hmm. as an employee, you came in as an employee, but now you become an entrepreneur and you have to not only have a bit of profit responsibility, but actual responsibility for the survival of your entity. And I think that's the fascinating uh, change though. But I think, you know, traditionally companies have been doing it by acquiring enterprises, right? Yes. It's, it's always yeah. been like, oh, let's buy a smaller company. But I think the fascinating thing now is that they're trying to seed it within bigger company and then have entities grow out of this. And I think that's where it gets really interesting. And what's the effect of technology on serendipity? So, you know, what what does the data-driven sort of technological evolution bring to the science of serendipity? Well, I think, you know, like COVID like mm. has taken a lot of the water cooler moments away from us, right? That yeah. we would in the office bump into someone mm. and then this amazing new project or idea comes from it especially for younger people, really important, mm. right? That you could run into the boss of your boss and then get this new opportunity or something. And so I'm a big fan actually of thinking about how can we recreate that online in okay. ways that are truly effective for serendipity, but also uh, recreate that kind of sense of belonging and, and so on. And so one practice that I find really uh, interesting is, is random coffee trials. And so the idea is that people across the organization sign up for one time they are free in the next few weeks. And then they get randomly matched with someone across the organization, across different hierarchy levels for a quick coffee and mm-hmm. potentially with an inspiring prompt like, what's the key challenge you're facing in the organization and how can I help you or something like that? And then they get matched up. And so now when you're a young person, you know, oh, next week I could again bump into someone who can really help me out. Or if you're a senior person, you might be like, oh my God, someone finally reinvigorates me because those five people I work with are so boring. And so things like mm-hmm. this, right? Where you kind of, in a way, it recreates a little bit also the, the, the sense of belonging that. We feel, we think we are relatively connected to a company because we coordinate a lot, but it's always the same people, right? It's always the mm. same teams versus if you're doing that, you open up the whole company again to these kind of water cooler moments. So I'm a big fan of those kind of things where technology is just a tool to, in a way, recreate some of these interactions. Um, but also then I think the beautiful thing, obviously, is that technology also becomes our own private plane, for example, right? I can mm. be in your living room now yeah. um, <laughs> like this, right? Without having to board a plane and fly over to you and and so on. And I think that's kind of the fascinating thing that in a way, when you reframe the situation away from, oh, the virtual world takes away X, Y, Z from us to, well, but it also gives us a lot, right? It gives us a lot in that sense. And I think then it gets really exciting to see the complementarity in terms of what we can do offline, but also online. Yeah. And I think in your book, I really liked the serendipity muscle exercises. So the idea of using it and training it like a muscle, this this process that we talked about of you know, seeing triggers, seeing elements, connecting them, connecting the dots and the whole sort of scale of, okay, how am I doing today on a scale of one to five, which makes it a really developmental practice, a deliberately developmental practice. Do you think this should be 
a fundamental part of leadership learning in organizations? I mean, what I'm seeing a lot in the companies I work with is, is that it's incredible how, you know, how, how much it allows an organization to reinterpret what they're doing yeah. uh, to get people excited around it, but also then to get fit for the future. And so, you know, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I actually think, you know, it's a bit of a pity that I think a lot of business schools and others kind of still focus so much on this kind of old school, yeah. you know, planning this, plan this, strategy this, even though we all know that real life doesn't work this way. And so I think it's kind of, you know, one of the things that I enjoy the most, both, you know, at the uh, universities I teach, but also others that now teach this content in, in organizations, mm. but also more broadly in, in, in business schools, is really this idea that I think it's both more of a representation of what actually happens in companies. So it it yeah. gives people more of a vocabulary to say, mm. yes, like I wasn't just there and it was just kind of everything was passive. No, I played an active role in it. I don't have to like, say apologize for that I wasn't all prepared for it because I prepared as much as I could. I built that mm. muscle, but then also I, I kind of did something with it. And so I think by giving an active language to that and actually depict the real living reality of people, it allows us mm. to build more trust. It allows us to, mm. to be more productive. But also then I think by then building in a couple of things that, are not about big, huge changes at once, but small changes, right? Small mm. changes like small questions differently and whatever it is. Then actually, it also allows us to just kind of go with the times and, 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 and become more innovative. And that's what mm. I'm most excited about. Small mm. practices as that, right? Weekly meeting, uh, questions <laughs> like what surprised you last week or project funerals, right? That are all about how <laughs> we learn from things that mm. don't work, like things like this mm. that are extremely effective in making people, giving people the license to have more serendipity. Yeah, I think it also creates a more inclusive environment, doesn't it? It gives permission for, to show up as yourself. It gives permission to not always be right. It gives permission to need to learn. And as you say, to nudge the system, I feel like saying to a different place that's less biased because you're more aware of, if each individual is aware of his or her bias, then of course, uh, collectively, there should be more awareness of the bias and therefore less bias. It, our system's never bias-free, is it? Because if you've got a brain, you've got bias. But so. Christian, what would your recommendations be, therefore, to leaders and organizations looking to start out on this journey of the science of serendipity and actually integrating it into the way they run their organizations and the way they lead their teams? Yeah, well, I think there's three immediate steps. The first one is to start legitimizing it, which is really Mm -hmm. about saying, here, I as a leader, let me tell you about how in my own life this has played a role. Here as a leader, let me, as I mentioned earlier, give you a vision of where we're going or a kind of bigger a sense of direction. Here's mm. an approximate strategy. But please, as you can see in my example and the example of others, I need everyone to be part of creating something. So there's the kind of bigger picture, legitimizing it. Then there's the kind of practical day-to-day integrating it into the mm-hmm. organization, right? From the kind of practice perspective, how do we in performance reviews incentivize people to come up with new ideas and then actually also invest into them? Because there's nothing worse than telling people come up with ideas, but they're not investing in them. Yes. And it's better to not tell them to come up with ideas, right? And, and so it's really kind of integrating it into the day-to-day. But then I think the biggest one is really doing the individual work, each of us mm. on every level, really kind of deep diving into, okay, what is holding me back from it? What can I do more in my life to have it? And the more we actually do that, the more also people around us get inspired by it right? and say, wow, like how, how did that happen? And, and that's really kind of um, what I'm most excited about, that kind of mindset that you can then influence a lot by working on your own biases but more importantly also then having a couple of practices that build your muscle and you know it starts with simple things like Mm. kind of making that one more link when you have a conversation or 
you know, linking one more thing when you read a book to something else. Like it's kind of neuroplasticity, right? Where you can frame your brain to see and connect more dots. And I think that's where it gets really exciting. So looking out for the elements and connecting the dots. That sounds quite vulnerable, though, as a process. What, what is the link for you between that process of creating serendipity and vulnerability? Well, it's interesting because I think vulnerability as a concept, I think, has been probably stretched quite a bit, right? Yes. Of, but I think I have a lot of kind of coaches and people who say mm. things like, oh, like, let's all be vulnerable. I don't think that works because a lot yes, of times that's a very performative way, right? It's mm. very performative of kind of like, let me give you X, Y, Z, TED talk in a very vulnerable way, but actually you rehearse it so many times that you it's, kind of tweak X, Y, Z, whatever. So it becomes, <laughs> exactly, it's not vulnerable by definition. And so I think there's a performativity to it sometimes, mm. unfortunately, but I don't think it's, it's useful or there's a kind of oversharing that also doesn't really help anyone, especially mm. not the person who's oversharing. And so I think what's actually much more interesting is exactly this, like what is, what is authentic to me in a certain mm. context and within that context, what contextually makes sense that I authentically share with people. And so what do I mean with this? Part of my life was as community building. And one of the greatest questions in community building is how do you develop an environment of trust? And trust a lot of times is based on finding some kind of common denominator, sharing over common denominators, figuring out what you have in common in some way, and then, and then building on this. And I think that's what, like, when I think about vulnerability in the organizational context, I think a lot about this. I think about, okay, how do I incentivize people to not only ask them, like, each other, what do you do, or mm. what is this, what this, but to really kind of ask more, like, what do you enjoy doing? What is it that you found interesting about this, like, presentation? Whatever it is, but open-ended questions that allow you to understand more about the other person and then also with the other person sharing a bit more things like the hook things or so that allow them to understand you a bit better. Because I think that's then not oversharing or something, but at the same time allows you to get a bit of a bigger, better mm. idea of the other person um, that then in itself can lead to extremely vulnerable conversations. But again, I, I don't think it should be like a, a prescribed thing in itself. It's more something that evolves from having deeper conversations with people, which by definition then usually involves a lot of kind of vulnerability later on. And then it can be a beautiful way to, to build trust, but I don't think it can be just pushed on people and then, yay, we are all vulnerable now. And then <laughs> in a way, you know, people feeling overwhelmed. But Yeah, no, it's, it's a process, definitely. So Christian, time is running, but I do have to ask you this last question. What are you currently trying to transform yourself towards? Well, it's interesting because I think one of kind of the journeys <laughs> that, you know, I've gone through mm -hmm. is I went from entrepreneur to academic to now kind of, you know, at that intersection, trying to figure out how do you make, you know, really good research that's very analytical. Mm. And at the same time, also, you know, when you do books like the one I just did with, you know, a, a kind of mainstream publisher, you're trying to figure out how do you tell stories in a way that are really relatable also, and that, that are really, in a way, not what necessarily an academic would intuitively do. And so mm. I think it's kind of like a beautiful synthesis at the moment between my previous life, which was a lot about storytelling and a lot about how do you like bring yourself out in the world mm. and then the academic world, which is more about evidence base and, and analytical and you take yourself out of it. And then now the kind of synthesis of the two is somehow being, okay, how do you keep the storytelling element around, um, you know, to, to actually share with people what, um, what also emotionally might, might be resonating, but also at the same time, then keep that kind of analytical grounding. And I think that's the journey at the moment to really uh, do that. And then you know, my next five or 10 years are really focused on, I've seen this content that we worked on over the next, last 10 years. Mm. I've seen it work so well in so many different contexts, you know, from parents reaching out and saying, oh my God, now I have a way to reconnect with my kids yeah. uh, at home. 
to um, psychologists saying, oh my God, that helps me reduce anxiety in my patients to, um, you know, companies saying, wow, this finally kind of mm. depicts what we're really doing here in the day to day. I think that the beauty of the next five to 10 years will be to say, okay, how do we now in each of these different areas really, yeah, bring it and scale it and, and really kind of have more and more people get mm. into this. And so that's also an open invitation, you know, to, to really co-create a lot of this, because I think yeah. this is really about saying, how do we shape in a vocabulary for this, but also uh, a daily practice that allows everyone to have that kind of joy that people who have that um, get from it, but also to then hopefully live more purposeful and, and, and successful lives. Brilliant. Thank you. And um, it's a brilliant playbook. I had a lot of light bulb moments when I read it and there's some great, great stories in there. So I'd invite our listeners all to go and have a look and have a read. Christian, thank you so much for coming and sharing your research, your stories and uh, your thoughts with us. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? The homepage is theserendipitymindset.com and I'm at Chris Serendip on Twitter. So Chris Serendip on Twitter. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if so, please head over to iTunes and give us your review and your comments. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation. Mm -hmm.